Good morning to each of you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I was maybe 16, 17, uh, sitting in my bedroom at home, doing my homework, not likely. My, uh, my father walked in because for some time I hadn't, uh, I hadn't been walking with the Lord. And my father walked in on me. I think I was 17 years of age. And he, uh, he asked me, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. He said, what makes you think that? And he turned around and walked out. Nice talking to you, Dad. Um, but you know, that was, a, that was a fatherly thing to do, and it was, a, it was a loving thing to do. And God used it along with several other factors or several other things in my life to bring me back to my, to my first love. I had fallen prey to a number of sins, one of the most serious being the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption. And it is a sin that is alive and well uh, today. It is a sin that is particularly prevalent within the professing uh, church today. I was reminded of this just this past week as I picked up the the October issue of Table Talk. That's a a monthly uh, journal, devotional guide that uh, Ligonier puts out. And it includes a daily reading, an exposition of scripture. And I was reading ahead through October's issue and perusing some of the articles. And there was one in there by uh, Pastor Tom Askell, who serves in a church in Florida, in which he writes the following. uh, The biblical teaching about salvation has been drained of its meaning to the degree that many today claim to have experienced it without undergoing any transformation. In fact, it has become common to teach that one can receive the gift of salvation without experiencing any sort of personal or moral change. After all, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, right? Of course, no Christian is perfect this side of heaven. But can a follower of Jesus live as an unchanged person? When someone becomes a Christian, doesn't he enter into a new way of life? Doesn't salvation necessarily involve a change of one's orientation toward God and his law? Is the pursuit of holiness optional for a believer? Is the pursuit of holiness optional for a believer? Well, the answer to that question, the answer to all of those questions is found in the text before us this morning in John chapter 15. As a matter of fact, to be honest, we could go to a number of different passages of Scripture in the New Testament in particular, which deals with this sin of presumption and and, and deals with this mindset that has invaded evangelicalism today, salvation without transformation. There are any number of texts we could turn to. But as we make our way through John's gospel account, we have arrived at chapter 15 and the Lord Jesus has some very detailed comments for the sin of presumption in the first 17 verses of this chapter. And so I invite you to follow along as I read these for us this morning. Listen carefully. Listen closely to what the Lord Jesus has to say here. 
I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, what we're going to do with this text this morning is very simple. I'm going to begin, as I always do, by explaining it. Uh, In order to explain it, in order to help us grasp the content, get our minds around it, I'm going to follow uh, four very simple headings, which you have on the sermon outline in your bulletin. I want to get through that rather quickly and then focus on three points of application. Uh, The Lord Jesus mentions the word fruit at least eight times in these verses. That seems to be the principal primary theme. And so I want to get through a very simple explanation of these verses and then focus in on three lessons concerning fruit, uh, gleaning the the, the principal points that the Lord Jesus is trying to convey, trying to get across in this text, in, in, in these verses. So we begin with the explanation. We begin with the explanation, and it all starts off with a metaphor in the first three verses. The Lord Jesus begins with a metaphor. To to get this metaphor, uh, we need to identify three objects. There are three three key components in this metaphor. The first key component is this. It's found in the very first phrase of the very first verse, where the Lord Jesus says, I am the true vine. So are you with me? In this metaphor, there is a true vine. The true vine is the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a question. 
Why doesn't he just simply say, I am the vine? He said, I am the door. I am the way. I am the good shepherd. Why not simply hear, I am the vine? Why does he say, I am the true vine? Well, speaking to Jews, there is a Jewish context. And as we read the Old Testament, we discover that on numerous, numerous occasions, the nation of Israel is described as a vine, as an unfaithful vine, a vine that failed to bear good fruit. And so the Lord Jesus here is making a contrast between Israel and himself. You know about the false vine. You know about the unfruitful vine. Well, in marked contrast to the nation of Israel, that nation which has failed to bear fruit, I am the true vine. So that's the first component in the metaphor. There's a true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is a second component. There is, still reading in the first verse, a vine dresser. Who is he? My father is the vine dresser. Simple enough. Pretty straightforward. And now the third component, verse 2, every branch of mine. Again, later on in the verse, every branch. And he speaks of these branches throughout the passage. Who are these branches? Well, I submit to you that the branches, as we read the verses, we discover that they consist of those who bear fruit and those who do not bear fruit. Uh, the branches consist of those who bear fruit and are therefore pruned even more by the Father that they might produce greater fruit. And of branches, on the other hand, who fail to bear fruit and therefore the Father removes them, casts them out, and they are burned up. Who are these branches? How are we to understand this? Well, I believe the key interpretive um, verse is, is verse 3, the third verse, where the Lord Jesus says, listen carefully to his words, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, thinking in terms of John's gospel account, thinking particular in terms of the upper room discourse, beginning in chapter 13, as you hear these words, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Your minds should immediately go back to what? Chapter 13. And so turn back there with me. Here, here is the key interpretive verse expounded in John chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, where the Lord Jesus has just laid aside his outer garments. We were in these verses not too long ago. He has picked up that basin of water. He has proceeded to wash the disciples' feet. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, that is to Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And there the Lord Jesus makes a very clear distinction among his so-called followers, among his so-called disciples, 
among those who have united themselves with him by a profession of faith, the Lord Jesus makes a very clear separation, a very clear distinction between, on the one hand, those who are clean who have indeed been washed by the word, who are indeed regenerate, and on the other hand, those who are unclean, those who have not been washed, those who are not regenerate. These two groups claim to be in the vine. These two groups are branches, and the clean are pruned by the Father, and they bear fruit. And the unclean, they fail to bear fruit because they are not truly one with Christ. They are not truly united with Christ. They have never been born again and they fail to bear fruit. And therefore, the father removes them, takes them away. They are burned up. In other words, the Lord Jesus here, by way of metaphor, I believe, is simply explaining what the disciples have seen just happen before their very eyes. Judas has been taken away. The vine dresser has come and he has made a clear distinction between the clean and the unclean. And so the Lord Jesus is warning that he has his branches. He has those who have made themselves by a profession of faith, claim to make themselves one with him. But the proof. The proof as to whether or not they are clean will be the absence or the presence of fruit. And what it is, the vine dresser, God himself does with them. That's the metaphor. That's what's going on here in these opening verses. But as we move on, we come to an exhortation. This is the second heading you will find in the bulletin. It encompasses verses four, five and six. There is an exhortation to abide in Christ, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Well, what does it mean to abide? It means to commune with Christ. We are one with Christ as regenerate individuals, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Spirit of God. We are one with him. We enjoy union with Christ. From that union flows communion with Christ, fellowship with Christ. We must abide in him. I know very little about plants and flowers. I do know this, though. Uh, they require sun, don't they? That's obvious. I'm showing my ignorance here. Plants require sun. Some plants require more sun than others. And so you have some plants, some flowers inside the house. Uh, the sun rises in the east. It's winter time, And so the windows in the southern part of the house are going to catch the sunlight and then a little sunlight in the western part of the house as it sets. And so a plant or a flower that requires a tremendous amount of sunlight, what will you do? Well, you'll set that pot, that plant, to the east of the house that it might catch the sun rays early in the morning. And then perhaps you'll move it to the south of the house so that the sun will continue to shine through the window. And, 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 and the plant's leaves will absorb the sun's light and photosynthesis and all that stuff will take place. And then you move it to another window in the western part of the house to continue to catch the light. That's what it means to abide in Christ. It means to continually rest in Christ. It means to continually turn to Christ. It means to continually trust in Christ. It means to seek to fellowship, to commune with Christ. And that's the exhortation there in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. Why? Because the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. 
unless it abides in the vine. In other words, the branch produces fruit, but it only does so insofar as it is abiding communion. It is attached to the vine itself. And that branch then reproduces fruit, which is of the same character of the very vine. Well, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And he repeats it in verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then we move on to a third heading, the motivation. He gives several motives to abide in Christ, to commune with Christ. Beginning in verse 7, all the way through to verse 15. And here we have a number of motivations, this This impetus to follow this commandment, this exhortation to abide in Christ. Do you want God to answer your prayers? Look at what the Lord Jesus says in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Do you want God to answer your prayers? Do I want God to answer my prayers? Here's the key. I must abide in Christ. And as I abide in Christ, As I commune with Christ, as I draw near to Christ, and His Word is implanted in me, my will is brought into conformity with Christ's. My delight is to do God's will and to know God's will. I pray in the Spirit according to the Spirit, and God answers my prayers. Do you want God to be glorified in you? Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. Yes, we glorify God in our words, don't we? We sing His praises. We speak well of Him. We declare His glory and His excellencies. But if we really want to glorify God, here's how we do it. By bearing fruit. We do it by abiding in Christ. And as Christ's likeness appears in us, And as we are brought into ever greater conformity to the character of Christ, and as that precious fruit of the Spirit shows itself forth in us, God's handiwork is put on display and God's glory is displayed for all to behold. Do you want to glorify God? Then abide in the vine. Commune with Christ. Do you want assurance? That you're a Christian. Look with me again at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Don't presume. Abide in me. May that fruit evidence itself. And in evidencing itself demonstrate that you are indeed my disciples. You see, that branch that is truly united to the vine must, cannot help itself if it is truly connected with the vine, it will bear fruit consistent with the vine. It can't do anything else. And if we are truly in fellowship with Christ, if we are truly one with Christ, in some way, in some fashion, in some measure, we will show forth Christ-likeness. 
And in showing forth that Christ-likeness, the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are indeed the children of God. Do you want assurance? Well, abide in Christ. Do you want to know God's love? We move into verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The Spirit of God has been poured out in our hearts. And God's love is poured out in our hearts as the Spirit of love himself dwells in us. But if anything will quench the testimony of the spirit of love, if anything will quench this this, this declaration of God's love for us, it is disobedience. It, it, It is a strained fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The further we move ourselves away from Christ, the more we indulge in sin and disobedience, the weaker that testimony of the Spirit of God becomes. The weaker our sense, our spiritual sense of God's love becomes. If you want to know God's love, if you want that inner secret voice and testimony of the Spirit of Christ, then you must abide in the vine. Let me ask you another question. Do you want to experience joy? Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The key to true joy, the key to true happiness, is fellowship with Christ. It is communion with the vine. Holiness is the key to happiness. Delighting in God's will is the source of all joy. And I know, I know it, I know it unequivocally, I know it without any shadow, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that that when my joy is is weak, uh, when my joy is fleeting, when my joy in the Spirit is, 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 is something that is beyond my grasp. It has weakened. I know why it is. It is because something has crept into my life and has broken that sweet communion with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you want joy, oh, you must abide in the vine. Let me ask you, do you want to love others? Do you want to obey this, this great commandment to love others as Christ has loved us? And given himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look with me then at verse 12. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Than someone lays down his life for his friends. If we are one with the vine. If we are fellowshipping with the true vine. The Lord Jesus Christ. Then that love which draw us to him is a love that will be made manifest through us toward others. Let me ask you lastly, do you want to be Christ's friend? Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. 
But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Let me repeat those questions for you. Do you want God to answer your prayers? I'm guessing everybody here does. Do you want God to be glorified in you? Sure, that's wonderful. Do you want assurance that you are a Christian? Do you want to know God's love? Do you want to experience true joy? Do you want to love others? Do you want to be Christ's friend? Then listen to the words of the Lord. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. There's the motivation. There's all the motive we need for heeding this command, this exhortation. The fourth heading is this. And this includes the last couple of verses, verses 16 and 17. The determination to abide in Christ. Where does it come from? I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells. I'm, I'm, I'm a cesspool of sin and weakness. How can I do this? How can I abide in Christ? Well, here's our hope in verses 16 and 17. The Lord Jesus continues. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. We know, we believe, we affirm that salvation is by grace alone. We know, we believe, we affirm that salvation is through faith alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Amen. Praise God. It does not stop there. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it is a faith that is never alone. It is a faith that becomes active. It is a faith that expresses itself. And it expresses itself as we fellowship with Christ. We abide with Christ. We are continually moving to catch the sun's rays so that Christ is formed in us. The fruit of the Spirit is made manifest in us. And in so doing, we glorify God. And all of this was appointed by God Himself who chose us that we might bear this fruit and that this fruit might abide. That is, that it might continue. So yes, we strive to abide. We work to abide. And yet we only do so in response to God's sovereign grace at work in us, do we not? We persevere because God preserves us. We abide in Christ because Christ abides in us. Octavius Winslow wrote centuries ago, Christian, O Christian, the only thing that makes you differ from the vilest being that pollutes the earth 
or from the darkest fiend that gnaws its chains in hell is the free grace of God. The free grace of God. There's our determination to abide in Christ. That's the exposition of these verses. Did you follow that? Not very complicated. The Lord Jesus begins with a fairly simple metaphor. Three key components. He's the true vine. The Father is the vine dresser. We are the branches. Not all these branches are good. Some are good. Some are bad. Some are clean. Some are unclean. Some will bear fruit. Some won't bear fruit. Some will be pruned that they might bear more fruit. Some will be taken away, cast away, and burned. And it is an exhortation to abide in Christ. And all of these wonderful motives laid before us. And then there is this determination, this wonderful reminder that this does not depend on us, but depends upon the sovereign grace of God. Now, as I mentioned in the opening, as we read these verses, I went through a couple of times and counted, but I could be wrong. I encountered at least eight references, eight uses of the term fruit. And as I've read these verses and reflected on these verses and studied them, This term fruit continually leaps up off the page at me and it seems to be the key thought. It appears to be the key theme in these verses. And so what I want to leave us with this morning are three lessons, three truths, three points of application concerning this fruit of which Christ speaks in these verses. The first point of application is as follows. Fruit. Fruit flows necessarily flows from union with Christ. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Why? For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the fruit of which Christ speaks flows, necessarily flows from union with Christ. Union with Christ is a glorious theme, a glorious subject. We spoke of it briefly a couple of months back when we went for a Sunday to Ephesians chapter 5 and considered marriage. There in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul reminds us of the opening chapters of Genesis and reminds us in particular of how, of how Eve was taken out of Adam's side at the time of creation. And it reminds us of how God not only took Eve out of Adam's side, but then brought Eve to Adam. And then how God brought the two together, making them both one. And then Paul tells us there in Ephesians chapter 5 that this mystery is great. Uh, This mystery is outstanding. This mystery is wonderful. But I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church. And so that relationship between husband and wife, that that. The mystical relationship between Adam and Eve, when God brought them together, it points to the relationship that actually exists between Christ and the church. But just as Eve was taken from Adam's side, so too the church is taken from Christ's side. The purchasing price of our redemption. And just as Eve is brought to Adam, so too the church is brought to Christ by the effectual call of the Spirit of God wooing us as he impresses upon us the glories and excellencies of Christ. And just as Adam and Eve become one body, are made one flesh, 
So too the church and Christ become one mystical body. We are in him. He is in us. The spirit of God unites us with Christ and together we form one body. That's what it means to be in Christ. We become the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Because we are one with Christ, we are the beneficiaries of so many wonderful blessings and gifts and privileges. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And because we are in Christ Jesus, because we are one with Christ in this mystical union with Him, Christ has become to us what? Wisdom. He has become to us righteousness. He has become to us sanctification. He has become to us redemption. These are all the blessings that belong to us because we are one with Him. Before becoming one with Him, we were foolish. Our minds darkened because of our sin. But being made one with Him by the Spirit of God, Christ has shone His light, the glory, His glory upon our darkened minds, illuminating our minds, helping us to understand God's truth. And because we're one with Him, He has become to us not only wisdom, but He's become to us righteousness. What was ours? Because we're now one. As far as God is concerned, what was ours is now Christ's, namely our sin. And Christ has borne the penalty of that sin in full at Calvary's cross. And because as far as God is concerned, I am one with Christ, one body. What is Christ's is now mine. And so I stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He's become righteousness to me. Not only that, he has become sanctification to me. Because I'm now one with him. The Spirit of Christ dwells in me. He has illuminated the darkened mind. He has softened the hardened heart. He has liberated that, that, that imprisoned will. And although I am not perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination, there now dwells in me the Spirit of God. There is a new principle. Sin has been dethroned. And I'm being renewed in the likeness of the one with whom I am one. In the power of his resurrection life. Not only has he become to me sanctification, but he has become to me redemption. Redemption in the final sense. Consummation. Glorification. That I have the first fruits of all that waits, awaits me in glory. And I have this guarantee. This sure foundation that cannot be broken. That God will perfect what He has started in me, and He will do so not because of anything in me, but because I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, from that union, there is communion. As I seek daily to thrill my soul with Christ by seeking Him in the Word, and He causes the Word to abide in me, he implants the word in me and by the spirit working in me, he makes me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of that mass of rock 
before the sculptor pulls out his chisel and hammer and begins his work, that was me. And slowly the, the sculptor removes this part, removes that part, refines this, refines that, perfects this, perfects that. That is what is going on in me. And you see there is this wonderful fruit called Christ-likeness. Not because of me. Not because of anything I am in myself. Most certainly not because of my strength, but because I am one with the vine and the fruit that the vine produces can't help itself but reflect the character of the vine. The grape that comes from the vine is a direct reflection of the vine from which it is taken. Well, I am one with this vine by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God produces this wonderful fruit in me. That's the first principle that the Lord Jesus is trying to get across, convey in these verses. That when we are one with Him, and when we abide in Him, there will be fruit. The second principle that the Lord Jesus wants to get across is this. Fruit proves the sincerity or insincerity of faith. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. It's a a path rarely trodden. It's a path we would rather not go down. And yet the Lord Jesus points us to this path, time, time. And time and time again, you think of his words in Matthew 6 and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, you will know them. You will know them by their fruits. You will know them. You see, John, sticking with John, John writes his gospel account that we might know that Jesus is the Son of God, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God, that we might believe in him, And believing in Jesus as the Son of God, we might have eternal life. Then when we turn to 1 John, John is no longer writing that we might believe in Christ. John is writing so that we might know we have truly believed in Christ. And there in 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he says, By this, by this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. There's the fruit. It doesn't say whoever doesn't sin. We don't teach nor do we believe in Christian perfectionism in this church. Certainly do not. We know we are sinners and we will continue to be sinners until the day we die. What John is affirming in this verse is that those who are truly children of God, those who are truly sons of God, cannot continue in sin, cannot continually, repeatedly practice unrighteousness, cannot live lives that are marked by habitual, continual, uninterrupted sin. I sin. I'll confess that before you this morning. But when I do, I can't think about it without shame. I'm as torn up as Peter, who went out and wept bitterly. 
I may sin, but I don't do so with the deliberate consent of my will. My cry is that of Paul in Romans 7. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I might sin, but I'll tell you I am restless when I do. My prayer is that of David in Psalm 51. Restore to me, oh, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I may sin, but I don't proceed from evil to evil. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us, they proceed from evil to evil. Why? They do not know me, declares the Lord. I might very well sin, but I groan. Oh, how I groan for the day when I'll be rid of it. Who, I cry, will deliver me from this body of death? I might sin, but I pray to God for grace to enable me to stop it. Keep back your servant, says the psalmist, from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. When my father confronted me in the quiet of my bedroom 25 years ago, I couldn't have said any of that. Are you a Christian son? Yeah, Dad, sure. What makes you think so? Turned around and walked out the door. It was like a ton of bricks being dropped on my head. It was the beginning of the workings, this glimmer of hope as the Spirit of God began to work, convicting me not only of other sins, but this terrible sin of presumption. And where there is salvation, there will be fruit. Where there is a true knowledge of Christ and God, there will be fruit. Where there is true union with the vine, there has to be fruit. You will know them. You will know them by their fruits. The third important lesson, there are others, don't misunderstand me, there are lots in these verses. The third that I want us to consider this morning is this. Take it out of verse 8. Fruit glorifies God. That should be our concern. That's what we should be about. That should be our desire. That should be our prayer. Follow along as I read verse 8 once more. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. William MacDonald wrote, Christian students who cheat on exams, Housewives who quarrel with their neighbors, common folks who are rude and short-tempered are all libels instead of Bibles. Every instance of behavior that is unchrist-like causes the unconverted to say, what you are speaks so loud, I can't hear what you say. Oh, if we want to glorify God, how there must be consistency between what we say and what we do what we profess and how we live, that yes, I can gather here every Sunday, glorify God with my words, but what do I say with my deeds from Monday to Saturday? As the world looks on, is God glorified as the world beholds Christ in me? Chuck Swindoll writes, like it or not, the world watches us with the scrutiny of a seagull peering at a shrimp in shallow water. The believer is under constant surveillance. That's our number one occupational hazard. 
And when we speak of our Savior and the, his life, and the life He offers, everything we say is filtered through that which has been observed in our lives by others. Oh, my prayer, my desire is that I might glorify God, not cause His name to be cursed among unbelievers, but cause His name to be glorified as the likeness of His Son is manifested in me. One final thought. I don't know who wrote this. If of Jesus, their only view may be what they see of him in you, my soul, what do they see? Our Heavenly Father, we come at this time thanking you for your precious word, thanking you for your glorious gospel, Thanking you for your loving Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to abide in Him. Help us to seek His face daily. Help us to seek Him as He reveals Himself in your Word. Help us to delight in Him. May our motivation be Him. May our end and goal in life be Him. May we be caught up in Him that He might be seen in us. Bless your word as it has been read, as it has been contemplated, as it has been declared, unfolded, and unpacked this day. And apply it, I pray, to the need of each heart gathered here. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.